Hello and welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into opportunity. Please follow us on social media and rate the podcast as it helps others to find us. I hope you enjoy the show. The transport sector has experienced its share of drama this year, starting with Cyclone Gabrielle wiping out so many roads and bridges across the North Island. The cyclone was blamed also for a sudden change in heart for the government as back in February, the Minister Michael Woods announced a very climate-friendly plan in its three-year transport plan, the so-called government policy statement. For the first time, I think, ever, uh, it prioritised emissions um, over uh, simple repair of potholes. But just days later, the Prime Minister and the Minister reversed many of those priorities by focusing on rebuilding those damaged roads. Then last week, the government also announced five options for a second harbour crossing and reiterated its commitment to a tunnelled version of the light rail project. And all this comes against a backdrop of a cost of living crisis, including Auckland Council uh, announcing a draft budget that reduces public transport spending and potentially reduced investment in some cycling projects. Well, who knew that transport could be so exciting? Paul Winton does. Thanks for joining me, Paul. Great to be here, Vincent. Thanks for having me. Now, I don't expect you to be over all these initiatives, uh, but some of them. But let's start first with a bit of context. Why does transport matter for climate? You've called it the low-hanging fruit in terms of emissions reductions. Why? Well, it's the it's the least hard of a bunch of hard things that New Zealand and society more generally could do to create a livable planet and to do that by decarbonising quickly. Uh, if you look at the other actors that are out there, you've got uh, the cows that account for about half of our emissions. Uh, then underneath that, you've got uh, transport. And then you rapidly move into various flavours of rats and mice that are harder and more fragmented to move. Mm. So it's not that moving transport is necessarily, I have called it the lowest hanging fruit. It's still giraffe height, but it is the easiest of a bunch of hard things to do. <laughs> it's, a, it's the tallest dwarf, as they say. Mm. All right, well, let's look at some of the, the changes then. Um, it, given those three things, the council budget, the the uh, potential crossing for Auckland Harbour and this new government policy statement, are they helping or hindering our journey to reducing emissions through transport? So if I focus on two of those, uh, the GPS and the uh, crossing, they're in short putting up a smoke screen that gives the impression of action whilst not doing anything at the scale and rate that climate science actually demands. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. And why is that? Well, if you look at the two stories that are playing out at the moment, one is playing out in Auckland, and that's a science, climate science-informed pathway into the climate reduction uh, plan that has been developed in a very community collaborative way over the last three years. And in short, in transport, that talks about a 64% reduction in petrol and diesel use by 2030 versus the 2016 baseline. So that's kind of 70, 80% less than today. And that's Auckland Auckland Council, and they're implementing this regional land transport plan, this RLTP. So there's the Auckland Council plan, uh, the Council uh, Climate Plan, which has then been expanded into the Transport Emissions Reduction Pathway. Oh, yes. 
gives the detail underneath that. Mm-hmm. And it's a very doable, executable plan, uh, which elements of which have been delivered all around the world already. So it's not uh, a dreamscape that's been created by people in an ivory tower. It represents an, a, a pathway with a solid evidence base behind it. And importantly, what it does is it builds towards Auckland actually responding to climate in a way which is appropriate, that's, which is aligned with a 1.5 degree future. Hmm. The other story that's at play, so that's the Auckland story, is the central government story. And that central government story has been informed by and really shaped by the work of the Climate Change Commission of a couple of years ago. And that is a much, much more uh, incremental, steady as she goes way, which is in no way consistent with a 1.5 future. And to put that in numbers, Auckland, I talked about being a 64% reduction by 2030, uh, the Climate Change Commission and the government, central government's plan is a 6% reduction by 2030. <laughs> so they are just worlds apart. And what we're seeing is that 6% is kind of, I mean, it's, it's less. And therefore that affords central government the opportunity to tell a really, really flamboyant story about how they are reducing emissions whilst actually not reducing emissions anywhere near as much or as quickly that science demands demands they do. Are you comparing apples with apples, though? The Auckland ambition around a reduction of 64% is just at Auckland alone, whereas the government have to deal with New Zealand as a whole, right? And in some ways, you're not really talking apples with apples because it, it presumably is easier to have a big impact in an urban centre where there is public transport, cycle infrastructure, and so on? It's a good question. So the the Auckland story plays out reasonably similarly across any urban environment. So your bigger urban environments like your Wellington and Christchurches, but even your smaller urban environments like your New Plymouths and New Palmerston Norths can benefit from a plan akin to and reductions akin to what Auckland has demonstrated. Once you do move out into the rural landscape, it is a different story. And it's also a different story in terms of what we're moving around, not because of a a, a much higher um, movement of things associated with the primary sector, with our milks and our meats, et cetera, et cetera. Hmm. So the story in the, the rural landscape is electrify everything and really just electrify the farm. And those solutions, whilst different, can actually deliver solutions, um, reductions comparable to those that have been proposed in Auckland. No, that's interesting. But what you're saying is in the urban centres, there's no reason why our urban centres, Tauranga, Hamilton, Dunedin and so on, can't replicate that science-based approach that Auckland has taken around uh, a reduction and and doing it through similar kinds of things. So increasing public transport, increasing modality shift to walking and cycling and so on. Absolutely. And it's, I mean, it's, it's always dangerous in Auckland telling other regions what to do, <laughs> to do it. But I think that one can look at Auckland as an example of how a science-aligned solution has been developed that has been drawn on, and this is public within the documentation, international experiences that have actually done the same thing. So, for example, Brussels over three years has reduced the number of vehicle kilometres travelled by about 40 to 45%. And in Auckland, part of the plan is that we need to reduce 
travel in uh, vehicles by about 50% by 2030, but in private motor vehicles by about 50%. So we, we know it's possible because it's been done elsewhere. Mm. Auckland's now further down the journey because they commenced this in the dying days of 2018, and other jurisdictions can look to it to use it to guide their own solution, which will have many similar elements. Mm. That said, the pla- there's a plan and then there's the reality. And we know that in Auckland, you know, there are still breaks being applied to the building of the cycleways. There's this beautiful cycleway called Tafo um, that will provide a really important link for West Auckland. Mm. Um, seems to have stopped. And the senses around this budget, but also around... Um, the commitment to the 64% reduction no longer seems to be there at a political level. Am I right with that? I think that what we're seeing now, and again, this is an Auckland story, is that we're seeing the reality of politics coming into play. So we've had a change in councillor and mayor over the last few months. And what that's meant is that the actors who are responsible for delivering on this, most notably Auckland Transport, have really used that as an excuse to delay, defer the action that has been decided after many, many, in some cases, a decade of consultation with the community. Hmm. So what we're seeing in practice primarily is vague signals from the political players, but that Auckland Transport has been interpreting this as a um, throw down the anchor, stop everything you're doing, even though if you read the words, it's very clear they should be pushing on. And the Western um, cycle infrastructure that you're talking about is a is a perfect example of that. That should have just carried on unabated after the election because those decisions have been made. Mm. But the board has chosen to hand that back to the council for yet another round of consultation and decision-making, which in- introduces additional costs and introduces significant political risks that this thing might not, not go ahead, in spite of it being one of the best payback things that we can do in the transport space. It's incredibly frustrating and saddening. Let's talk about the bridge. Uh, there were five options. Not Well, not necessarily a bridge. could be a tunnel. Uh, there were five options for a harbour crossing put forward by the, um, uh, by the government, all of which... Uh, Prioritise roads, actually introduce new roads. <laughs> so we're back to um, preferencing the private vehicle. Uh, that seems to be at a very superficial reading, kind of my interpretation. Do, do you have a view on whether the any of those five options is better than the other? It, it, it's worth taking a step back from the five options to the problem that we're trying to actually solve. And as we talked about earlier on, Auckland's trying to solve a different problem to the central government. Central government is trying to introduce very incremental changes that are are politically easy. Um, It turns out that being the sorcerer's apprentice of roads and just building more roads is politically palatable to even the centre-right and the centre-left. So what they are proposing is various flavours of massive infrastructure about a decade plus out that actually do nothing to solve the climate problem we have, which is a this decade problem. So if I talk about that crossing itself, it's been talked about for a long time, and it's worth reflecting on the fact that we have in Auckland about 6,000 kilometres of road, of which the crossing accounts for about one and a half. 
So it's not immediately obvious how putting one and a half kilometers of stuff in the middle of 6,000 kilometers of roading is going to somehow magically open up the entire <laughs> network to congestion-free and cheap and easy and equitable transport. So in doing this, they're effectively avoiding the actual problem uh, and putting in a whole bunch of money and a story about progress a decade plus out mm. um, that they hope will placate voters. And um, cost $25 billion potentially, or somewhere in the order of that. It's not unheard of for such projects to go over budget as well, it must be said. <laughs> so, you know, that, if, if that's the starting budget, then, you know, it would not be crazy on past experience for that to have a 2x in front of it. So what we're talking about is infrastructure will, that will indebt future generations in a way that, is, if you look at it in a, in a really dispassionate, evidence-based way, is not really needed right now. All right. Well, well, let's examine that. There's sort of two questions within that um, thought. But one is the bridge is a pinch point, and it, it does separate two really significant parts of Auckland and Northland from the the rest of the country. Given that that's State Highway One, so you can't say that it's not an important one kilometre of real yeah. estate. Yes. Yeah, so so, it, so investing in that pinch point is, you know, there's some logic to it, Paul. That would be my first question. Yep. So that's. I think it is true that it is a really important one or two kilometres, and without it, clearly all sorts of transport and freight wheels would fall off. But in contrast to what you've just said, it's actually not the pinch point. The pinch point is north on the motorway and south on the motorway. The bridge proper itself has loads of capacity, loads of capacity. It sometimes runs into a bit of a spike, during the awkward parts of the day. But because we're able to shuffle lanes around, um, and it is actually an eight-lane highway, um, it is actually running clear most of the time. So in adding additional capacity in that middle bit solves no problem and really takes us back to the earlier point that um, we have 6,000 kilometres of road and this is one or two kilometres. So if you're going to fix stuff, it's not obvious that's the first place you would go. All right. Well, the second question then is, what, where are the pinch points that needs to be solved uh, and where else would you spend that effort and capital? Yeah, so that's a really good question, the question that should be being asked. So if we look at the, one of the core problems we have, we've been framing this as a climate issue, which is really we're burning too much petrol and diesel, but there's a meta issue here, which is we just have too many private cars on the road. You know, in terms of cars per household, we have almost three cars per household in New Zealand, which is a lot. And so those pinch points you talk about exist at differing places in the network at differing times of the day, but they are, in essence, they are congestion. And what is congestion? In contrast to what some are arguing is that congestion is actually caused by road cones, congestion is actually caused by too many cars on the road at the same time. And the only way you fix that is you take some of those cars off the road at that time. That's just really simple maths and really simple physics because <laughs> it just takes up physical space. You and your logic. Why can't we build more roads? But <laughs> um, so, so you think by addressing the volume of cars by what? By mode shift, so offering alternatives to the private vehicle. 
Um, yes. What else? Congestion charging so that you incentivize different, the spreading the load over different times a day. Are those the better solutions? There's a number of solutions of that nature. And if you take a step at the, bo- at the top of the, I guess, the prioritization stack, the first thing is travel less. So don't go as far. So live more local and build local communities and local businesses. And uh, when you can, work remotely, for example. Do you really need to go to that um, meeting in the city? Can you go there remotely? Then there's travel active. So use your barter bullets, use your bike uh, to go 100, 200, 500 metres down the road to the dairy, Mm. which, by the way, also supports your community. Then you travel public, um, and then after that, whatever's left, you electrify. And if we look at what we need to do in the urban landscape, we need to displace mode shift. Call it 70, 60 to 70% of the trips we take today out of a car into some other format, butter bullets or bikes or e-bikes or public. And to do that, so that's all well and good, we need to have safe passage for people to do that. And coming back, so coming back to your earlier question, where would you put that money? Well, you'd actually be rolling out cycle lanes at roughly 20 to 30 times the number of kilometres per year than we're doing at the moment. You'd be increasing the bus fleet by a factor of three to five, and you'd be providing safe passage for those buses to get where they need to so that they are the easiest and the cheapest way for you to get around. It actually unlocks a really interesting, um, apart from the infrastructure and the capex kind of um, aspects of what you're talking about, it also opens up a social justice aspect, doesn't it? Because if you've got a network of public transport that's frequent, safe, comfortable and ubiquitous, suddenly it's easier to get around town if you're experiencing financial hardship if you're traveling late at night for shift work and so on there's actually an interesting kind of social justice element to what you're talking about absolutely i think there's the the concepts of transport poverty are real and they're twofold they're time poverty those who are obliged to live a long way away from their work or their school have to burn a lot of time getting to a place and then there's boring old financial poverty and the average household in new zealand is spending on the order of $10,000 a year, three to four times their power bill, keeping the Pajero full going mm. and uh, and paying for the loan costs on it. Mm. Whereas, and if we look at this at a national level, we spend about $8 billion every year on petrol to countries overseas that murder journalists, et cetera, et cetera. If we were to shift to a active and public infrastructure model, you can still drive, but heavily in, in favour of those active and public modes, we might spend $1 to $2 billion a year. So we have 5 to $6 to $7 billion a year that we could not spend to offshore shareholders, that we could reinvest back in our communities, and doing so, give people the opportunity to get around in a safe, healthy, resilient, decarbonised and equitable way. Mm, that's so interesting. Hey, um, Paul, it's always good talking to you. Um, really appreciate the effort you put into this stuff. I know it's a part-time gig for you, but um, your thinking's really welcome. So thanks for your time and thanks for your mahi. Right. Thanks, Vincent, and thanks for raising awareness of these topics. Really important. This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into opportunity. 
Please follow us on social media and rate the podcast as it helps others to find us. 